I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. Now this fast forwards just a little bit in the history of the exile. Last time we, uh, we read about an event that happened on the last day in which Babylon was in power, really. There were continuing battles before it came to a complete end, but really this was the downfall of the Babylonian Empire and the establishment of the kingdom of the Persians and the Medes. Now we're fast-forwarding a little bit. Under the reign of Darius, of the, uh, of the kingdom of the Persians and the Medes. Now there are some things that we don't exactly know in terms of the, uh, the timeline and the history of what happened here. For instance, we, we find the king identified as Darius. We know, however, from Ezra that as was prophesied by Isaiah, um, Cyrus was the first king of the Persians and the Medes uh, when they took over from Babylon. Um, and he was the one who determined to order the Jews to go back, that giving, giving them permission to go back and, and resettle in their land. Now, what's the relationship of Darius to Cyrus? We're not really sure. Some believe that um, Darius was a regional ruler, probably a general, who ruled as a figurehead for Cyrus. That's one possibility. Um, others believe that Cyrus came to power shortly after Darius. That is also a possibility, although it's not really reflected in the historical record. Um, it seems most likely that Darius was his Median name, his name to the Medes, Cyrus to the Persians, because Cyrus is also all, almost always identified as Cyrus of Persia, Darius as Darius the Mede. So it's very likely they're the same person. But there is absolutely no unanimity among the biblical historians about that. Regardless, Darius is the one who, in Daniel's record, and Daniel was there, entered and took over from Babylon. And amazingly, even though when he entered the city, Daniel's wearing a robe of purple and a necklace of gold and bearing title of the third ruler of the kingdom, Daniel doesn't die. God in his sovereignty preserved his life and, and didn't just spare him, but gave him a position of power among the Persians and the Medes. That's unheard of. That's a demonstration of our God's sovereignty. But listen to what happens, because when those kinds of things happen, when men are exalted to power, other men are made jealous. And power struggles ensue, and that's exactly what happens here. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. 
Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded. And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered 
during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Amen. Beloved members of the family of God through Christ. I imagine this story is unfamiliar to no one. I mean, it's pretty much guaranteed to be included in every children's story Bible, right? What fairy tale could top this historical reality? Here we find the amazing account of a faithful servant of God who has served the Lord all his life. Now he's an old man who's been placed in a position of great power. He is loved by the king and hated by those who covet his power. So they conspire in order to get him sentenced to death, but then miraculously death never comes. The lions who were intended to kill him and tear him limb from limb spend the night quiet, giving him nothing but peace. An amazing story with many lessons for God's people, but in considering the lessons of this chapter, we mustn't neglect the heart of the story. Because the heart of the story isn't simply, you know, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. That's one of the lessons, sure. But the heart of the lesson is what we find when we recognize that Daniel stands as a twofold type. A type is an image, a pattern of something or someone bigger. And Daniel stands here as a type, first of the Christian, of the believer in God, and how he is to live his life before the Lord. But also, and even more importantly, a type of the one in whom the Christian trusts. He is a type of Christ who demonstrates how he would deliver God's people by suffering what they deserve. We're going to look at the typology in Daniel as well as some of the other lessons that we see here. Under the theme that our just God delivers his servant Daniel, from the enemy's pit. That's, that's our theme. Our just God delivers Daniel from the enemy's pit. And we find the heart of that theme in verses 19 through 22, which relate how Daniel is delivered for innocence received. He's delivered for innocence received. But before we dive right into that. We need to remember the context. We need to study just for a moment the details of the story. As I said before, we're in a different kingdom than the one we've been dealing with. Chapters 1 through 5 deal with the empire of Babylon. Now that empire has fallen. It is no more. And we're dealing with the empire of the Persians and the Medes. With a new kingdom comes a new government, a new order, a new culture. But astonishingly, Daniel, who was one of the, the chief leaders early in uh, his time in the Babylonian Empire, is finds himself again a leader. Finds himself again in power. We're not told why this happened, how this came about. That had to be a fascinating story. I'd certainly love to sit at his feet and hear about it in the new heavens and the new earth. But for now, we're just told that he was retained, that 
Darius had set over the kingdom 120 officials. These were like regional governors. They had History tells us they had a great deal of power, a great deal of autonomy in the region that they served. They were basically like states, governors of the states. But each of those satraps answered to a particular president, a particular ruler, who was like a member of the king's cabinet. There were three of them. The whole empire was divided into thirds. Each satrap answered to one of these presidents, and Daniel was one of the three. And we're told that the king so loved Daniel, so appreciated Daniel, that he was pondering, he was considering setting him over the three. So he would basically be second only to the king. But before that could happen, Daniel's fellow presidents and satraps plotted against him. You see, whenever there is great power, whenever there is great authority, that acts like a drug on sinful people. Uh, the the well-respected Lord Acton, a number of years ago, 500 years ago-ish, uh, said that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He was actually speaking about the Roman Catholic Church at the time. But it holds true wherever there is power. The more power there is, the more corruption there is. And that's what happens here. They, they want to get Daniel out of power because they want to get that power for themselves. And Daniel, it seems clear, doesn't play ball with them. He doesn't run in the same circles as them. Oftentimes, the way power corrupts is people with great power conspire together to multiply their power. But Daniel doesn't do that. He doesn't play ball. He doesn't act like a politician is expected to act. And so they try to get him out of the way. And first they do it with legitimate things. The, the presidents and the satraps were all intended, we're told, in order to in, ensure that the king might suffer no loss, verse 2. In other words, they were to be sources of accountability to make sure that all of the graft and all of the corruption that government draws wasn't harming the kingdom, wasn't harming the king. So they start looking for, how's Daniel been getting his kickbacks? Where's Daniel been profiting in all of this? And they find nothing. And in fact, they end up concluding the only way we're going to trip this guy up is with regard to the law of his God. Daniel is so openly devoted to God that they realize that's the only place we can, we can snare him because he won't contradict the law of his God. He won't violate the commands of his God. So we've got to use that. Would that all of God's enemies might stay, say the same. This isn't the, the main lesson, but, but recognize too often the people of God give the enemies of God all the ammunition they need. We act like those of the world who live apart from Christ. We compromise until our lives look just like that of the unbeliever. We seek out power. We play politics. We see it on Christian school boards. We see it in Christians who are leaders in business. I've worked for some of them. It's not pleasant. You see, you see the name of Christ get dragged through the mud because these people openly profess Christ but act like unbelievers. Beloved, let the world never find us that easy to bring down. May we live in, in the way Daniel demonstrated, a, a way that 
convinces them the only way they're going to get rid of us is if they find a way to bring us into conflict through the law of God. That's what they conclude with Daniel. The only way they're going to get rid of him is if they force him to compromise on the law of God, which they know he won't do. So they write a new law based on idolatry. Darius, the king, seems to be ignorant of their true motives, and his guilt really lies in his pride. He loves being exalted. Men do that, right? They delight to have other people think much of them. And Darius is a polytheist, which means that he worships a multitude of gods. So he can't see the offense that this injunction would bring to one who worships only one God who he believes is the only true God. As a polytheist, he sees no reason why people wouldn't wouldn't be willing for at least a brief time to see him as the mediator among all the gods. You know, I mean, they can get back to their regularly scheduled gods when they want to once this is over. But for 30 days, they'll have to pray to him. And he sees this probably as a unifying opportunity. Right? Just like Nebuchadnezzar with his great image of gold will unify the people of all these nations that have been conquered by the Medes and the Persians by causing them all to pray to the same mediator, which just happens to be me. He sees it as a win-win. And he makes the decree, and when he does, as was the tradition of the Medes and the Persians, it's irrevocable. In fact, the historical record shows us that there were times that innocent people were put to death with the king knowing that they were innocent because the evidence that exonerated them, that, that demonstrated that they were innocent, came up after they had been sentenced. And because the sentence was issued by decree of the king, it couldn't be revoked, even though the king now knew that they were innocent. And that's how we come to find Daniel being sent to a den of lions. Daniel's insightful. He knows as soon as he hears it what the purpose of this law is. But as soon as he hears it's been signed into law, he goes and he prays. Now this isn't civil disobedience. This isn't thumbing his nose at the king. This isn't an attempt to boldly demonstrate the illogic or the damaging aspect of a new... No, no, no. All Daniel's doing is what he's always done. God commanded his people to pray to him. God commanded them in Deuteronomy, when you're exiled for your sins, you're to humble yourself and you're to pray to me. And when you do that, I will hear from heaven and I will restore you. And that's what Daniel's been doing. He's been doing it three times a day, facing Jerusalem, which is what Solomon told them to do, because Jerusalem is where the Temple had been, Jerusalem is where the sacrifices were offered, Jerusalem is where the image of Christ was to be found. He's basically praying in the name of Jesus who is to come. That's what he's been doing, that's what he continues to do. Why? Not as a means of protest, but because God comes first. And he's not going to change that. That's precisely what his enemies expect. And Daniel knows that too. He knows He's going to get busted. He knows he's going to give them all the evidence they need to hang him, as it were. Now, this is not the main point of the text, but, but we need to ask, do I share Daniel's commitment to God? 
He knew when he knelt down that his enemies were watching somewhere. That his actions would be used against him and would force the king to sentence him to death. Now Daniel could easily have made excuses that would have sounded really good. I mean, it's only 30 days. I can pray in private until then. I can go into a closet in my house where they can't see me. Or, you know, it's, it's probably better for God, it's better for His honor that I remain in power than that I get, you know, made into a martyr. Or, you know, our faith is supposed to be private anyway. I mean, I shouldn't make a big public spectacle of things. But folks, those are all lies that smell of Satan's lair. If your faith is not public, if your neighbors can't see your faith, if your neighbors can't see that your confidence in Christ makes you different than an unbeliever, then it's not real faith. And if the government demands compromise, you must choose. Whatever the consequences are, will I truly trust the Lord? Or will I fear men instead? It's not just theoretical. In our land today, people are being forced to make that decision. Certainly it's happened in Canada, clearly enough, right? We have ministers in the URC who have faced fines and threats of imprisonment unless they require worshipers to violate their conscience in order to attend worship. Right now in America, Christian counselors are facing the demand that they, that they support transgenderism and homosexuality and other things that God's Word condemns or face fines and imprisonment? Are you committed enough to God to serve Him openly regardless of the consequence? We need to ask that. Daniel was. And King Darius grieves when he sees the trap that has been laid. He spends the, the day seeking ways to escape the sentencing that he knows he needs to issue. It doesn't work. And so he sentences Daniel and then he goes and does what no pagan king ever does. He fasts. He denies himself. He, he rejects the temptations of the flesh in order to grieve and pray. That's amazing. That never happens. Now the sentence that he issued against Daniel, that, that was known to be a certain death. And not a very pleasant one. Not very long and drawn out, but not pleasant. Those lions were kept hungry for a reason. And yet Darius, notice this, Darius dares to hope. When he goes in the morning, he calls out to Daniel. He harbors a hope. Why? We can only surmise that it's because Daniel's faith was so strong. Daniel's confidence in God was so unshaken that it even affected Darius. Even the king, this pagan polytheistic king, thinks he might have something there. He calls out, Daniel, has the God whom you serve saved you? And Daniel, to everyone's shock, calls out from the lion's den, O king, live forever! Amazing. Everybody expected him to be dead, and, and he calls out very much alive. And then he explains that our God delivered him from the pit of death. It's interesting how he explains it. My God, he says, sent his angel. The angel of the Lord. Malach Yahweh. This is the one whom God sends anytime his people are to be delivered. His kingdom is to be delivered. Or his enemies are to be punished. 
We saw him in Daniel 3, walking in the flames with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's the one who revealed himself to Joshua just before God himself defeated Jericho for his people. He's the one who commissioned Gideon to deliver Israel, foretold the birth of Samson to Manoah, who fed Elijah in the wilderness. Psalm 34 says he encamps around those who fear the Lord to deliver them. This angel of the Lord, who is Christ, came to Daniel's aid, not to remove Daniel from the pit. Notice that. He didn't prevent Daniel from being thrown into the lion's den. He didn't grab hold of Daniel as soon as he entered and, and shuffle him out of side entrance. No. He stayed in the pit with him. God's people aren't always delivered from their trial. They're not always exempted from the darkness of the valley. He just walks through with them. The lions are there. Their growls, their hisses, unmistakable. But he shuts their mouths. Now that deliverance all by itself is stunning, brothers and sisters, and a powerful call to faith. But that's not the truly amazing part. The truly amazing part is Daniel's explanation. Verse 22, Daniel says God delivered him. This is how it reads literally. God delivered him because before him innocence was found in me. Now that is a very awkward phrase, even in the Aramaic. Because before him innocence was found in me. In Aramaic, I'm no Aramaic expert by any means, but, but I know it's possible to say because I was innocent. Or because he saw my innocence. He doesn't say that. He says, because before him, innocence was found in me. Why does he say that? Folks, it's because Daniel recognizes. He wasn't inherently righteous. He wasn't sinless in God's sight. But as verse 23 says, he had trusted in his God. See, the innocence that was found in Daniel was not Daniel's innocence. It was the innocence that God had entrusted to him, the innocence that God had imputed to him through his faith. It's the innocence that we possess. One day, God's going to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? And your answer is not to be because I am innocent, because I am sinless, or, well, I think my good deeds outweighed my bad. No, they didn't. The only answer that will count is because innocence is found in me. Christ's innocence. I trusted in Him. And He imputed His innocence to me. You see, Daniel is a type of the Christian. He's a pattern of the Christian who is delivered by God from the judgment that we otherwise would deserve. Because the innocence of Christ is found in us. Because we trusted in Him. That's why Daniel was delivered. That's why we will be delivered. However, let us not overlook the other type that Daniel displays here. After all, he was sent into the pit, into a sure and certain death. In what might be considered his burial, the pit was sealed with a stone. And a Gentile ruler who knew he was not guilty of the crimes for which he was convicted. 
ensured that stone could not be removed by impressing it with his seal. But then when, when his friend, when the one who loved him and spent all night fasting, grieving, came to the pit the next day, instead of finding a corpse, no, he found him alive who had been supposed dead. Is this not an image of Christ? Oh, not a flawless image in all of its details. Daniel didn't actually die, whereas Jesus had to. But is that not an image of how Jesus would be consigned to the grave, but then would rise up, sealed into the place of death, but then released by God's sovereign care? Amazing. Beautiful image. You see, Daniel foreshadows not only the Christian, but Christ himself, whose innocence he had received. Daniel's burial points to the source of our own deliverance. One who died and was buried despite his righteousness. One who entered the grave truly, but arose victorious over the grave. That's who delivers us. The one who delivered Daniel is the one who delivers us, and it's his innocence that is imputed to us if we trust in him. Now that's a lot to think about. And I, I urge you to ponder through that this week. How Daniel is an image of Christ, but also how he is an image in his deliverance of us. But there's two other points we need to consider. They're both, both very brief, but we do need to take note of them. Because God gives us here not just a picture of our justification, which is what that is, but also of our sanctification and of our standing at the judgment. Remember back in verse 3, we read how Daniel had distinguished himself in Darius' eyes because an excellent spirit was in him. I submit to you that we have in Daniel a foreshadowing of what the Christian looks like, ought to look like, must look like because of the work of the Holy Spirit. To be sure, the Spirit had not yet been poured out in all his fullness, but he was already at work in the life of God's people, turning their hearts toward the Messiah making their lives increasingly to reflect God through His law. Now that's important. Because while Daniel was delivered because of innocence imputed to him, nonetheless the king had seen something different in Daniel. He had seen something unique in Daniel because he was a believer, because he was a Christian, as it were. And so we see in our second point that he was delivered with righteousness restored. Look at verse 22. It says, My God sent His angel and shut the lion's mouths and they've not harmed me because I was found blameless before Him. Literally, again, because blamelessness or innocence was found in me. And also before you, O King, I have done no harm. Now that's a mouthful. First he explains why God delivered him, but then he, he declares his righteousness before the King. You see, Daniel wants Darius to see that his deliverance should not have been a surprise. Darius has seen Daniel's behavior. No fault could be found in his service. His loyalty, his faithfulness, his dedication were unquestioned. Even his enemies saw that. And Darius should have recognized that is not normal. You see, in a world filled with sin, in a world filled with fallenness, righteousness stands out. 
It's not normal for sinful men to be trustworthy. It's not usual for men of corrupt hearts to be blameless. When the Soviet Union broke up, I was thinking about this with the sudden spread of Russia. You know, when the the Soviet Union broke up, some of you adults will remember this, um, the former Soviet countries like Ukraine, there was so much turmoil and flux in those places because they were... They had been so beaten down for so long by communism. But something I remember reading uh, a few years after that happened was that the church began to blossom. And with the blossoming of the church, Christians began to be in demand. Because communism had taught people to be selfish. Communism had taught people to steal. Communism had taught people to lie. Communism had taught people to think of no one but themselves. And Christianity does the exact opposite. It teaches us to be trustworthy, to be hard workers, because we're working for God, not for men. It teaches us to be honorable. And that so stood out that when people found that you were a Christian, you were immediately employable. Because they knew they could trust you in the way they could trust no one else. That's what Daniel's telling the king. Daniel had behaved before the king in a way that was stunning and that should have shown him something unique was going on here. Something unique was happening in him. Beloved, are we living in that way? If we truly have faith in Christ, we're going to be living in that way. Philippians 2. We talked about this in our uh, family visiting text last year. Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If we trust in Christ, then God is working to transform us. He's working to make our lives different. And that doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't mean we're suddenly sinless. But it does mean that we begin doing all things without grumbling or disputing that we may be blameless and innocent, holding fast to the word of life. It says that we'll, we'll shine in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation like lights. If the Spirit is in us, we're going to start acting different. We're going to be trustworthy. We're going to be faithful workers. We're going to forgive those who have offended us. We're going to seek to make peace where there's turmoil. People will notice that. And what they're going to be seeing in you, young people hear this, what they see in you, is not just that you're such an exemplary person. No, you're going to see Christ. Because that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's remolding us and shaping us to bear the image of Christ. That's what Darius saw. He saw the image of the one who later would shut the lion's mouths. In the trustworthiness and the faithfulness and probably even the joy of Daniel. So that first of all, if if we are to be delivered by the innocence imputed to us, innocence received, then we will also be delivered with a righteousness that is restored through the Holy Spirit. But then also we're delivered amid justice revealed. When Daniel is delivered, Darius rejoices. The crowd is amazed. They can hardly believe what they've seen. He should have been dead by all rights, and yet here he is talking to the king. Here he is lifted up out of the pit. They examine him. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't even have the smell of smoke on them, Daniel doesn't have a single claw mark 
That's amazing. Kind of makes you wonder if the lions are defective. Going to have to test that out. And so they do. The king immediately orders the conspirators brought forward. And whereas the law of God limited justice to that which was just, the pagans had no such compunctions. They didn't just bring the conspirators. They brought their wives and their children. And they threw them all in the pit. Clearly this man was righteous. Therefore you must not be. And before they even reach the bottom, the lions are breaking their bones in pieces. That's justice. That is justice. Those who falsely accuse, those who maliciously sought the destruction of the righteous are destroyed. And in that we see, brothers and sisters, the foreshadowing of what the day of judgment will hold. On that day, we heard this morning, right? In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world, says Christ. In this world, we will be falsely accused. We will be hated. We will be slandered. People will conspire against us. We have been blessed immeasurably to be in the minority among Christians in the world that we haven't felt much of that. But our brothers and sisters in the former Soviet states, much less in Russia, our brothers and sisters in China and North Korea and the Muslim nations, oh, they know what it is to be falsely accused and slandered and hated and passed over for promotions and beaten and to have justice denied to them. But Daniel's story shows us that the day will soon come when they will be vindicated. They will stand before God and before all mankind as Christ says, this one is mine and in me he is innocent. And those who slandered them will be paraded forward to declare, no, it was all a lie. I knew this one was righteous. I knew that she didn't do what I said. And then they will receive Judgment. It won't be a momentary judgment. It won't be something that's over in a moment. It'll be something eternal. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't say that to gloat. But as a warning. And as a consolation. A warning. Because if we have not turned our hearts to Christ, that's the end that awaits us. We'll be thrown into the pit and there won't be someone there to shut their mouths. And we'll have deserved it. We'll confess that we've deserved it. So let none of us have that future awaiting us. Let each one of us confess that our hope is in Christ. That our confidence is in Him. But it's also a comfort. Because in this world you will face tribulation. In this world you will face false accusations and slander and all the rest. But you don't have to get even. You don't have to bear a grudge. And you don't have to get bitter. In fact, you can feel pity for them. 
Because the day will soon come where they will answer for every word they have spoken, for every deed they have done. And the justice that they will face is infinitely worse than anything you could plan or devise. So don't waste your time and don't sully your reputation by plotting against them or by allowing bitterness to grow. Instead, pray that they will turn. Pray that they will repent. Show them the love that they have denied to you. That they might turn. Because otherwise, their end will be more grievous than anything we can comprehend. The day is coming soon. When every one of God's enemies who has acted as Daniel's unrighteous accusers have acted, will stand before the judgment throne. And no more will there be false accusations. No more will there be fear in the hearts of God's people. But we will be vindicated for the innocence received, the innocence imputed to us. That faith that we had that joined us to Christ will be demonstrated by the righteousness we received and showed in our lives. And even as that is declared of us, judgment will be poured out upon God's enemies. The day comes quickly. So let us prepare well for it. Let us live today in the light of it. And through us today, may God be glorified. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us at times to live in the light of the day of judgment when that's not what we see, when what we see is injustice toward your people, when what we see is painful to us. But Lord, we pray that you would give us that eternal vision, that ability to recognize today in the light of that day, so that we might not just Confess Christ, as amazing as that is, but, but also show love toward and testify in the presence of those who today are your enemies, that they might be turned. And teach us to remember, Lord, that no matter how badly we are mistreated and no matter how justice seems to be denied to your people here below, the day will come when you will exercise justice on our behalf. So comfort us, Lord, and turn our eyes to you, the true and faithful King and Judge. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.